Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Sarah, it's that time again. We've been here once before. We're going to be here again, probably. It's time for the MCU. I thought that movie looked a little bit familiar. Are you sure we're not repeating one from a couple of months ago? No, we're doing a different one this time. We're going a little bit smaller scale with the new film for Phase 5, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Quantum Mania featuring Ant-Man and the Wasp. And then we're going to be pairing Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania with our watch list pick, another movie about time loops and repeating ourselves over and over again. That would be Doug Lyman's 2014 film Edge of Tomorrow, aka Live Die Repeat. Hopefully we find something a little bit new to share about the films this time around on episode 370 of Seeing and Believing. You're an interesting man, Scott Lang. You're an Avenger. You have a daughter. But you've lost a lot of time, like me. We can help each other with that. Who are you? I'm the man who can give you the one thing you want. What's that? Time. Welcome to episode 370 of Seeing and Believing Listeners, or uh, as I'm going to call it, summer in February. We've got ourselves a lot of, I guess, air conditioning movies, or at the very least, you know, those action sci-fi movies that we tend to look forward to in the summer, but we're getting them earlier and earlier. Maybe it's just a sign of early spring, which... I wouldn't say no to. I would not say no to that either. I did think that the the groundhog, what, did he, did he see his shadow and so we have six more weeks of winter? He, he did whatever the thing was that means we have more winter. He did see his shadow and we do have six more weeks of winter. But according to the movie release calendar, that's a lot of bunk. So. Oh, well, okay. Well, you did pick an appropriate movie to pair in the watch list segment with that sentiment. We're going to be talking about... Uh, Doug Lyman's Edge of Tomorrow, which is kind of a time loop sci-fi actioner uh, in the second half of the show. But the first half of this episode is going to be occupied with uh, a behemoth in its own right. That's right. The MCU is back on seeing and believing. We're going to be talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp Mania. This is uh, the installment wherein the MCU kicks off the next chapter in its 30-film, give-or-take, franchise with the unlikely figure of Paul Rudd's Ant-Man. Ant-Man, a.k.a. Scott Lang, has mostly been the star of smaller-scale kind of caper comedies up to this point, but in this film, when his teenage daughter finds a way to make contact with the subatomic universe known as the Quantum Realm, the adventure gets a lot bigger, figuratively if not literally. 
Lang, along with his partner Hope, aka the Wasp of the title, discovers that there's a new multiverse threatening heavy out there, and they have to team up with Hope's scientist's parents and the Quantum Realm's weird denizens to stop him. So Sarah, this is, like I mentioned, the movie that's going to kick off the so-called phase five of the MCU. It's kind of a a new chapter, a new big bad. Based on the evidence of quantum mania, how is that future looking to you? Oof, um, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I've been more in tune with the Ant-Man movies of the past than I am with this one. And I think it partly has to do with a sense of scale for Ant-Man. So like you mentioned, the previous ones tend to be on the lighter caper side. There's a lot of fun side characters. Um, And we don't really get quite that same tone here. It almost feels as though this movie is being used as a lot of table setting in order to bring us the next installment. That kind of comes with the MCU territory. There's always going to be a little bit of a level of throat clearing and table setting for whatever's coming next in the adventure. That's just kind of the nature of serialized comic book storytelling. And if that comes with the territory, that's fine. But it kind of felt as though a lot of the sense of humor of this particular superhero was just kind of left a little bit by the wayside in favor of, I don't know, developing a little bit more of a house sense of MCU drama that didn't really quite fit the first two movies for this superhero. So I'm I'm curious to know if you got that same sense or if you're a little bit more positive than I am on I'm, it. I am not a little bit more positive than you on this movie. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, so longtime listeners know I'm a little bit of an MCU grump. Um, I've, the, you know, I've not been... Uh, someone who loves the Marvel movies. But, you know, like in the past, there have always been, even in the ones I haven't enjoyed that much, there have been bright spots, right? Where I've, where even if I've been kind of bearish on the movie as a whole, I've come away from going like, oh, okay, well, you know, there's some some fun performances. The, the characters have always been a real strong suit for Marvel, even when the stories aren't necessarily the most involving for me. You know, you know, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, like they're they're so good in their roles that the the movies go down pretty easy. Um, Quantum Mania, I think, is the first MCU movie where there's just not been that that kind of bright spot. It's just it's all really seems like it's it's basically a commercial for itself rather than an interesting story in its own right. And uh, I mean, maybe we can start with talking about the characters. I think that's a big shortcoming with this film in that I don't, I don't think to the extent that there are even characters in this film, a lot of them get short shrift. Mm -hmm. Um, But even the ones that, that are the focus of the film. So, uh, you know, Paul Rudd, uh, Evangeline Lilly, Michael Douglas, Michelle Pfeiffer, kind of the core cast uh, who are off on this adventure. I, I mean, between the four of them, maybe there's one and a half characters. Mm-hmm. Mo- so much of the, the film's time is spent with a lot of business, like the characters going places, meeting people, doing things, but they never really have... There's not really a time in in the movie where it slows down and kind of just lets them be 
people. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem in a movie when the other business is also not very interesting. <laughs> I'll raise you one frustration, which is that I would argue that Evangeline Lilly's character, Hope, um, aka the Wasp, isn't really even present in this movie at all either. She kind of feels as though she's a supporting character in her own movie, which is doubly frustrating because the title is literally Ant-Man and the Wasp. And she doesn't get very much to do except stand around and react to what other people are doing and then occasionally zip in with her super suit and save the day. And that sense of, I don't know, quote unquote, movie empowerment for a character like her kind of feels as though it's paying lip service to the idea of a female superhero without actually doing anything of substance with it. She she doesn't, she has no internal, nothing. like there, there's nothing going on internally mm-hmm. in her character in this film. And I think the only two characters who really have anything going on internally are Scott Lang, Ant-Man, and then King the Conqueror, who we'll we'll get to um, at some point. And then I guess you could probably say that Scott's daughter, Cassie, also has a little bit of an internal life. Um, She kind of feels a little bit more core to this movie, to me, than Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer do as well. Um, But, and this kind of gets at my beef with Marvel movie characters in general, which is that a lot of these characters are just kind of the label that you slap on them. And then there isn't really very much character development that happens while they are on screen. You get a little bit better sense of character development in the earlier MCU movies when they were still kind of establishing their brand. They had all of the actors like, you know, Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr., who have very strong on screen personas. But you can also boil those characters down just to that's Captain America and he represents one single idea and that's it. Whereas with a character like Ant-Man, he's kind of defined by his capacity as, you know, an ex-con and an ex-thief. He's also defined by the fact that he is, you know, a father of a daughter. And I think the movie treats that a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But all of these other characters within the movie are literally just treated as though their entire character is the label that you slap on them. So scientist, mother, daughter, father, etc., and then that's all that you really need to know about these characters. And there isn't really anything dynamic that's being done with them. We got we get a lot of setup for internal like and interpersonal conflict between these characters, especially in the opening notes of the movie. There's some conflict between Hope and Janet, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, over what Janet was up to when she was banished to the quantum realm for 30 years, as established in a previous version, in a previous uh, episode. But that conflict doesn't really go anywhere. Kind of once it's raised, it's just allowed to float there. And then there isn't really anything that's done to resolve or settle it. It's just that these characters are the sum of their labeled parts and nothing more and also nothing less. And I find that deeply frustrating because I think a lot of the very interesting character development that you could do with a Marvel character typically tends to happen off screen in between installments. And you get to see these characters kind of pose and be, you know, a father or a thief or, you know, a superhero. But beyond that dynamic posing in front of a lot of explosions or cool looking backgrounds, there isn't really much there there. And I think that's always been the case with the MCU. It's just that it feels like it's come more to the forefront with this installment. I, there there are a lot of carts being put before a lot of horses in terms of the, the characters in this film, I think. You mentioned the relationship between Hope and Janet in this film, where there is ostensibly a 
an interpersonal conflict going on there. Uh, Hope is having trouble trusting the mother who abandoned, who she thought had abandoned her for for thirty years, mm-hmm. um, who is. Uh, back with her now, but still seems to be keeping some secrets. That is on paper a sturdy basis to build some sort of an interpersonal drama on. But the movie is only interested in that conflict insofar as it gets them to do certain plot relevant activities. So the the lack of trust is mostly used as an engine once we get into the quantum realm of Janet kind of uh, taking Hope and uh, Hank Pym, uh, Michael, Michael Douglas's Douglas, character, yeah. uh, from place to place, um, meeting various minor characters and pie- piecing out um, bits of exposition along the way. The The only reason that that entire uh, subplot isn't deathly dull, just absolute poison to watch, is because there is kind of that kernel of some sort of interpersonal conflict with their trust issues, but the film never really explores it. It's literally just there to keep us from getting bored as we're flying in a, in a spaceship from one set piece to the next. And I, I think that's kind of the problem with a lot of the, the interpersonal relationships in this film is that there's not really anything undergirding them. They're just there to be a cog in the, plot machinery there's nothing on the on the level of uh like an ideological philosophical conflict in something like captain america civil war where Mm -hmm. you know uh tony stark and uh captain america are they're 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 in conflict not just in terms of they both kind of want to do different things but they see the world in completely different ways and that's there, there's some meat on that that is interesting to think about after all the punching is over. And there's nothing like that in Quantum Mania. Yeah, I kind of have a, a theory that the MCU has been sort of grasping for a way to establish itself tonally for, as separate from the original Avengers. Because, right, like the ideological differences between Captain America and Iron Man definitely set the conflicts between those two characters apart, probably more so than just about any other conflict throughout the entire MCU franchise. And part of me wonders, too, if both of those characters left such a big mark on the MCU that Phase 4 leading up to this point was kind of flailing around trying to grab at some of that magic. I I kind of feel as though the house sense of humor for Marvel is a very quippy, dry, sarcastic, we're going to say something snarky about what's going on on the screen in front of us, and it can sort of serve as exposition. And to me, that kind of feels like it's trying to capture a little bit of the fire of that Robert Downey Jr. performance in particular. He was very good at delivering a quip in a way that felt real and lived in, in a way that I don't think anybody else is fully able to do. But a lot of the other movies, at least in this previous phase, have been kind of trying to capture that. And part of me wonders if the MCU at this point is a lot of those interchangeable cogs in a machine that are trying to replace a previously existing part that was, you know, custom made specifically for some of the movies earlier that just doesn't really exist anymore. And that kind of gets into the aesthetics of this movie, too, a little bit. Like, I kind of want to talk about the look and the feel of this movie, because it feels as though 
the MCU has been a little bit Star Warsified. I don't know if you picked up on this at all while you were watching it, but I would see different sets and I would see shapes that felt a little bit more at home with Star Wars, especially the later sequel trilogy, like just the shape of certain windows or the way that um, an arch was built to get from one building to another. There's a couple of buildings in here that kind of have that round domed shape that you get on Tatooine as well. And um, it just kind of made me think that it felt as though Quantum Mania is trying to crib from a lot of other influences without having fully established its own voice first. And it's doing that both with the characters and with the tones that those characters strike, and then also with just the general look and the aesthetic of the film, too. Well, I, I think that you're identifying something that is kind of the the deep sickness in this film, is that it's it's Disney trying to reverse engineer uh another kind of juggernaut on the level of their their earlier uh you know, the earlier story arc in the MCU with Thanos and and the original cast of heroes where it started off kind of establishing these characters and then building a scaffolding of a universe around around them um but i mean riddle me this why is this movie being made? <laughs> is it because there needs to be a phase five after a phase four? It kind of feels because that's the way mm -hmm. it kind of feels to me is that Disney knows they need to continue telling stories because they've got these characters. They, they have this these characters in hand. They need to do something with them. So they need to tell stories about them. So they need to build worlds for those for those stories to inhabit, for those characters to live in. Mm -hmm. But there's not really any sense watching Quantum Mania that these CGI vistas, for all the fact that they're, you know, at least on the surface, kind of they're colorful and there's a lot of stuff you've never necessarily seen before, but you get the sense that they're only there for a similar reason to the trust issues between Hope and Janet. They're there to be, to provide a context for the next thing to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't really get any sort of sense of uh, the kind of the lovingly handcrafted feel of the Maz Eisley can Cantina from the original Star Wars, which is a sequence that is very specifically quoted mm -hmm. in this film. So they're definitely wanting to make you think of that, like call back to that earlier picture and say, here is a Maz Eisley for a new generation and a new set of heroes. But this Moss Eisley feels like there's it's it's not part of a larger whole. It's just there to kind of twin, you know, tickle your brain receptors <laughs> and then move on to the next thing. And that's just it's deeply unsatisfying to encounter world building like that, where the world being built is not being built for the joy of the world, but simply because we need something uh, there so that these characters aren't just punching each other in a void. You want my really cynical take on this? Um, I feel as though this model of world building is the kind that has been sort of IP tested to begin with because we already know how people are going to react to Amos Eisley and to 
I don't know, like a Dunkirk sequence, which we also get in this movie. Like I was recognizing bits and pieces of other stories that I had seen before in this one. And it felt as though the safest choice was to go with something that had already been sort of play tested and had proven successful with audiences before. And maybe that's just because that's kind of Disney's MO with storytelling to begin with. Or maybe that's just because I kept seeing things that felt like they had been cribbed from something else and because it's easy to make that center of my brain go ping whenever I see something that I recognize. But it felt as though Disney had both been reading a lot of the notes that have been given to them over the course of phase four, um, especially in terms of like the level of color. I straight up wrote in my notes as I was watching this movie, color does not equal interesting. And yet I feel like that's one of the things that I've been saying about the MCU movies for the last, I don't know how many years at this point, which is that a lot of them look the same and there's not a lot of color going on here. It looks as though everything's been washed out. But just adding the idea of color to a story without having an underlying purpose to it kind of defeats the purpose of including that color and that variety in the first place. Because if you're just doing it in order to please a critic, or if you're doing it in order to try to get somebody to say, hey, I've never seen that combination of these two bright colors together before, that doesn't really do anything to propel a story along other than just show you a bunch of bright colors in an action sequence at the end of a movie. It, I mean, it, it. so I found myself thinking a lot of Avatar, hmm. uh, the two Avatar films while watching this one, because there, there are... I mean, there there are a lot of superficial visual similarities. So qua the quantum realm is sort of this. Uh, it, it's a little bit like Pandora with a different color palette. Like there there are these floating islands in a, in a void. Uh, there's you know strange creatures flying around, swimming around, popping up from the ground, um, and yet. My experience, I wouldn't say that the Avatar movies are great films. I mean, we, we reviewed uh, The Way of Water uh, at the beginning of this year. And, you know, it was it was fine. I think we, we, we both, ha both had quibbles with it. But one thing that we both really liked about it was James Cameron's willingness to just build this world and luxuriate in it. Mm. Uh, where there, there are entire sequences in Avatar where... We're just swimming with whales or looking at fish, and that's enough. And that kind of joy and simply being in this world and um, and Cameron's joy in creating that world for us to enjoy, like that's something that you can sense in watching The Way of Water, even if the the storytelling might be a little bit cliche and the dialogue's not very good that joy in creation comes through mm. and that was just something that i was sitting in quantum mania wanting to experience and was bitterly disappointed when uh it all seems to be in surface of getting us to the final laser battle mm. or where it's it's simply it's there as win essentially very, very expensive window dressing. Yeah, and that's that I think I find the most disappointing because some of that window dressing I did actually genuinely enjoy quite a lot. So you mentioned some floating creatures and some of them look kind of like amoeba or paramecium. I don't know what the, the uh, plural of paramecium is, but you know, the, those small beasties that you see under a microscope in, in high school biology. Um, 
And then there were a couple of other creatures that, you know, had like snail eyes and looked a little bit like horses, but they were also snails. And some of those background details that the movie didn't really call all that much attention to, I did appreciate because I thought that they looked interesting and creative, but we don't spend any time appreciating them. They're just there, like you said, as window dressing. Same deal with the backgrounds, which I kind of want to talk about just because I feel like there's been a decent amount of a big deal made about the technology behind them. Um, I believe a lot of this movie was shot, you know, on a soundstage and it shows, but the technology that they've been using for it was projecting the background for the actors to also be able to see as they're acting it out. And I kind of wish that that had shown a little bit more, at least had been given some level of depth, because some of those backgrounds look really good, but it's also still just a bunch of actors on a soundstage with a background behind them without any real sense of they're actually there. Like you can you can pretend that they're there and a very good actor would be able to pull off that idea of I am somewhere that does not exist. People do it all the time. But here it kind of felt as though a lot of these actors are just, you know, floating heads and torsos in front of a space that could be swapped out for something else. You can change the background and the technology that you're using to shoot this movie, and it functionally doesn't really make much of a difference, which is disappointing because we're supposed to be in a dimension or a world or a universe that we've never really been to before in the MCU. We've seen glimpses of it, but it's been mostly hinted as being kind of this this dangerous place where nobody is supposed to be able to survive for a very long time. And yet watching the movie and watching our heroes kind of go through this realm, I got the sense that they could just very easily be on a planet next door or in some other location in some other MCU movie. And I couldn't really quite get the sense that the quantum realm was remotely different from any of the other planets or universes that we've visited in this particular film franchise before. It just kind of felt as though those backgrounds were interchangeable in more ways than one. I mean, it is kind of hard to cultivate a sense of of wonder and strangeness when all of the characters are written to sort of react to their surroundings with the same sort of blasé flip attitude that Tony Stark has when he gets served a drink, you know, a drink he doesn't like or something like it's just there's there's kind of a mode of behavior that all of these characters are set in with the exception of one character. And we said we were going to get to Kang the Conqueror. So maybe now is the time to do that. But uh, most of the characters kind of just exist in this in this headspace where they they just don't it, it. that something is holding them back from reacting in uncool ways to things. None of them, <laughs> none of them seem taken aback by the fact that they're they're seeing any they're seeing dangerous creatures or a sentient sun or all sorts all manner of weirdness. They kind of go whoa, and then it's back to the quips, mm-hmm. and that for me has has the effect of destroying any sort of sense of awe or otherworldliness or fear or even tension in this world that is supposedly supposed to be so dangerous. And I know that's that's a huge misstep. But let's let's move to King the Conqueror. Yes. Because <laughs> for all, you know, we've been down on the movie so far. I do really like Jonathan Majors a lot as an actor. And I think he's maybe the sole glimmer of something special in this film. And 
uh, maybe we can talk about him a little bit. Oh my gosh. I love Jonathan Major so much. I actually, I'm pretty sure the first time I ever came on Seeing and Believing, I was guest hosting with Wade and it was mm-hmm. so that we could review The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was the first time I was made aware of Jonathan Major's work. I believe it was his breakout role. Um, he's just so good and interesting and he's he's got this real sense of gravity to him like whenever he's on screen he's all that i'm able to look at even when he's just you know being still or contemplating something he doesn't have to be delivering lines in order for him to be interesting because it feels as though he's got a real sense of what his character wants and what he's about and how he wants to get about it, regardless of the character that he's playing. Like There are real wants and needs under there, and he's able to show that without having to explicitly tell us anything about that. So I'm really bummed out that he's kind of in the MCU, to be perfectly honest, in that it means that he's going to be doing a lot of this kind of movie for the foreseeable future, at least if everything goes according to the Phase 5 plan. I'm also really glad that a lot more people are going to be introduced to him as an actor, and I really hope that he's able to use this movie as a way to sort of springboard into other additional big, interesting projects with big, interesting characters for him to play with, because he's playing a very big character here, and I'm curious to know how you reacted to that. He's always doing something interesting on screen. I think that... I mean, part of it is that alone of all the characters, he, he's the one character who's not kind of afflicted with quipitis. Like he's he's a character who speaks in a different idiom mm. than than the other characters do. And that helps. But also Majors just is able to find different uh, vocal cadences, uh, different uh, physical business. Uh, to pair with his his line readings that just make him interesting to listen to, even if what he's saying doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I don't think like Kang is a difficult character for me to pin down. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is just because I'm forgetting something that was explained in a different you know MCU property. He did or... show up at the end of the Loki TV show. Okay, yeah. different iteration of the character, but yeah, yeah. So so maybe I you know there there's certain niceties that I'm just not picking up on because I'm a philistine. But <laughs> he even if I didn't understand it, Majors is kind of magnetic, and he brings this really interesting human sized quality vulnerability to this this character that. We never saw in Thanos, mm-hmm. you know, not that not that Thanos didn't have kind of vulnerability to him that we saw in his relationship with Gamora, say, but Thanos kind of always just felt like he's the he's the big bad guy first. And if he has kind of an interior life, that's not really accessible to the audience. And it's kind of beside the point anyway, mm-hmm. with Kang. Thanks in large part to Jonathan Majors investing him with that kind of interiority. He's actually really interesting to watch. I don't know that the MCU is going to be able to uh, cash the checks that Majors is writing here in this <laughs> with this with this first look at the character, but at least it's something. And credit where it's due, I did like him in the film, even if I didn't like the film very much. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I am very curious to see whether those checks do get cashed or if they bounce. At this point, it feels as though the MCU is enough of a juggernaut that it's going to keep on rolling whether we like it or not. And at the very least, if we're going to have a 
big villain who's making big, interesting choices. I am glad that we get Jonathan Majors to play that character. I don't know that I'm necessarily optimistic about the rest of the MCU, but I don't know that either of us have been optimistic about the MCU for a little while. So, I mean, I'll, I'll say this based on Quantumania, there's nowhere to go but up. <laughs> this is the worst of the MCU films, I would say. Really? I... I have not like, yeah. This yeah. is by far my least favorite of the of the MCU films. So, hopefully, like I can't imagine them getting much worse. So they can only get better. Fair enough, <laughs> listeners. That is our review of Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania. If you have some thoughts on this film, it uh, has been out for a little while. So. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of you have had a chance to see it, and not all of you are uh, as skeptical about the whole project as as we are. So we're really interested to get your take on uh, on this film and uh, whether you think that it's writing some checks that we'll eventually be able to cash. You can let us know your thoughts over on Twitter at Pod. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or check us out over on Letterboxd, uh, letterboxd.com forward slash Pod. Looking forward to hear from you. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about another sci-fi action movie, Edge of Tomorrow, in the second segment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time for the conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. One way that we do keep that conversation going is through Sarah, who has taken on the reins of our Twitter account and tweets out a question every week for you guys to talk about, debate about, share about. So Sarah, what did you do this week? I went with kind of a galaxy-brained one, which is that because Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania does ostensibly have something to do with a parental relationship between Scott Lang and Cassie Lang. Um, I just tweeted what we want to know. What's your favorite movie about a parental relationship? And we got some really good answers back from this one, Kevin. Christian Hammaker responded back with, maybe it's because I saw it shortly after the birth of my first child, but my answer is an animated movie, Finding Nemo. It's a good pick. Yeah, uh, I mean... The the list of Disney movies and Pixar movies that are about like, you know, parental relationships is long and Finding Nemo is definitely the one that really gets it the hardest in, in a lot of ways. It, def it definitely does. Um, I have a very soft spot in my heart for that movie. Christy Olsen uh, went humorous and said The Empire Strikes Back, which made me laugh out loud when I saw it. <laughs> and then she followed up with also Jojo Rabbit, which is a movie that I have some problems with, but I do appreciate the parental relationship between Scarlett Johansson and her son in that movie. Yeah, I really like Scarlett Johansson in that film as well. Yep. We also heard from the Macaw Podcast Universe, which is a podcast by Jordan and Micah Macaw, who responded back with just Ladybird. It's a great pick. Yeah. Um, Ron Sturry responded with consideration for the recent The Fablemans, 
but love the complex, detailed story of Boyhood by Richard Linklater, which I actually have not seen yet. Yeah, the I mean, it's it's a good film for. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not telling most people anybody anything they don't know by saying it's good, but the performance that Patricia Arquette particularly gives in that film is a great argument for her being a great actress. She's so good in it. So one for me to add to the list of movies that I will hopefully eventually catch up with. Um, Seth Haney responded with, oh, geez, a thousand clowns, easy, not really a contest at all. And Seth, I'm going to be honest, I had never heard of this movie before you responded in with it, but it looks fascinating. Yeah, I have to admit that too. I've I'm not familiar with this film at all. I'll have to add it to the list. Yeah, it's a, a for listeners who like us may not necessarily be in the know. It's a 1965 uh, American movie about um, an eccentric comedy writer who has to figure out a way to conform to society enough in order to be able to keep custody of his nephew, which sounds um, like a really fascinating and interesting internal and parental conflict. So thank you for bringing that one to our attention, Seth. That's one that is definitely going on my personal watch list. And then Kevin, we also finally heard from host emeritus, Wade Bearden, who responded with E.T. because it explores the impact of both present and absent parental relationships. I mean... That you can't argue with with E. T. Can you? No, no uh, you can't. Thanks for writing in, Wade. Uh, uh, nice to nice to hear from you, and way to bring the the heavy Spielberg hitters with with your pick. Yeah, we've got some good Spielbergs in there. We've got you know the Fablemans, and then we've also got E. T. So you know, kind of both ends of his career, and also just really good movies in general. You can't really talk about movies about parental relationships, absent or present, without bring up Spielberg somewhere. So I'm glad we got him in there. So I'm assuming the way that you said that makes me think you probably didn't pick a Spielberg. I mean, (laughs) I feel like I talk about late spring all the time on the show. So late spring is obviously my pick for the best uh, one, especially considering that quantum mania is about father daughter relationships specifically. Mm. And late spring is my just the best father daughter relationship ever put on film in my opinion i won't argue with you there it's so good um so i might just put that uh in the penalty box to use a film spotting phrase and go with wes anderson's the royal tenenbaums for something that's a little bit you know has has a little bit more uh salt a little bit more uh acid to it than than something like late spring but It's also really good. Yeah, that's a great movie. Also a nice thorny one with, you know, difficult parental relationships in several different dimensions and with several different characters. So Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. an excellent pick. My pick is um, also a little bit more recent, um, but not by too much. It's Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace about a father and daughter living um, unhoused in the Pacific Northwest together and coming to terms with the different ways in which they both approach the world and the different kinds of lives that they want to lead. And it's just, it's a beautiful movie. Gosh, that movie is so good. I really want to rewatch it now. (laughs) Just so much of the way she shoots the, the setting and those two lead performances are just incredible. Thomason McKenzie, Ben Foster. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, made me a believer on Ben Foster, actually. I wasn't a huge fan of his before, but Leave No Trace brought me around for sure. It's an incredible performance. And the two of them have just such great chemistry together that I really believe them as a father-daughter duo. And every single decision that the two of those makes sense throughout the entire... 
every single decision that those two characters make throughout the movie just makes perfect sense. Like they're very lived in characters like we were just talking about in our review of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Like sometimes you have to have that sense of lived in-ness in order for a character's decisions to make sense. And here, every single one of them just does. It's it's such a wonderfully realized movie. Well said. It's a lovely film for sure. Thanks for writing in listeners and sharing your picks. We hope you enjoyed ours. And now we return, as we have so many times in the past, <laughs> to the watch list segments. This is the part of the show where we always have one host pick a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it, and then we talk about it. And I bring it up that way because the movie we're talking about in this segment is also about a repeated activity over and over. It's Doug Lyman's 2014 Edge of Tomorrow. And this is a premise that could probably best be described as Groundhog Day combined with Independence Day. Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise plays William Cage, a military officer with a desk job in the middle of an alien invasion. Through a series of lucky or maybe unlucky coincidences, Cage finds himself caught in a time loop where every time he dies, he finds himself waking up on the morning just before a D-Day invasion that will determine the fate of humanity. As the cycle continues, Cage races to find the alien's weakness, along with Emily Blunt's super soldier, who is the only other person on Earth who understands exactly what he's going through. So, uh, you know, Sarah, we've already talked about that yeah, this is a sci-fi action movie, Quantumania is a sci-fi action movie, but was there some other sort of galaxy brain connection that you had uh, to justify picking Edge of Tomorrow for this segment? Uh, well, Edge of Tomorrow is a movie that does the same thing over and over and over again, but it delivers slightly different results, which uh -huh. feels like a pretty strong contrast to the MCU. Maybe that's a little bit mean, but at the same time, it's also true. I I have no argument. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I had not seen Edge of Tomorrow in a while, so I had actually forgotten about a lot of the plot beats and was sort of experiencing the movie fresh this time around. Um, which I feel like gives me a, both a bit of an advantage and a disadvantage because I think this movie does strengthen as you are watching it and as you get a sense for the repetition because this is a movie that uses repetition in smart and interesting ways to tell an interesting story that feels predictable at first, but as the story continues to unfold, at least for the first two thirds, it feels as though it's going to take you in places that you don't necessarily expect. It doesn't just keep itself on the railroad track of the repeated Groundhog Day sort of scenario. It gives the characters additional branching timelines to go and explore, to try to figure a way out of their plight and hopefully end you know, the fate that is threatening humanity as well. And at the same time, I think one of the things that I like about this movie so much is that this is a movie about trying to prevent the end of the world. Like we're, we are effectively canceling the apocalypse to quote another movie about uh, sci-fi soldiers battling another alien invasion. And um, in this case, it's about canceling the apocalypse, but it is also very much about the character development of one William Cage, played by Tom Cruise, and then also about the relationship between him and super soldier Rita, played by Emily Blunt, and the universe-ending stakes of the movie are still important, 
but they kind of take a little bit of a backseat to the stakes of these characters have a goal that they want to reach and they have to reach it or else they too will be ended. And I like that the movie sort of foregrounds those interpersonal stakes a little bit more highly than it does the universe ending stakes. I do feel on the rewatch that it kind of stumbles a little bit in the execution, at least towards the very end. But I appreciate the ride that it takes to get me to that point. And it's such a fresh and interesting way of approaching this kind of universe ending sci-fi action problem that it's one that I feel is still very much worthwhile, even though I've probably cooled a little bit on it the second time around. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was a little cool on it. Well, I don't know. Cool isn't the isn't the right word. That because that make it sound like I I dislike the movie or that I find it mediocre, and that's not the case at all. I had a good time with Edge of Tomorrow. I'm Sweet. glad that I finally caught up with it because I've had a lot of people like you're not the first person to tell me like oh you got to catch up with Edge of Tomorrow. It's such a a great action film, and I think it really does have some really solid bones to it, especially that first hour where you know, Cruz acquires his gift, so to speak. And uh, then we kind of see the different way, the different attempts he makes to make use of his cursed knowledge of what is actually going to happen when these troops hit those beaches on this D-Day invasion. I really liked how, uh, you know, we, we see him, you know, try to be upfront about it and, you know, he gets his mouth duct taped shut. <laughs> we get to see him kind of just, uh, leave the military base entirely and just go drink in a pub and just to see what the end actually looks like. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I really like how the movie keeps things fresh in, in that first hour. And then when we get kind of to the, about the the two thirds point, we start to see uh, how what any Groundhog's Day kind of premise worth its salt has, which is the interper the, the personal effect that this time loop is having on Cruz, where we find that the central tension for him almost isn't are we going to be able to you know find the aliens' weakness and destroy them, but are we going to be able to find the aliens' weakness and destroy them? and have Emily Blunt's Rita make it through alive. Mm -hmm. That is the central tension that I found really interesting. And I was a little bit disappointed that it didn't explore it a little bit further. It kind of goes into a more conventional uh, route in its with its climax, where it kind of feels a little bit more like what you would expect from a sci-fi action movie with Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. But up until that point, I think it's really crackerjack action sci-fi. And uh, I had a good time with it. So I know you're a Lovecraft guy. What did you think about the alien design for this alien invasion? I mean, I loved the production design just in general, like not just the aliens, but also the, the, the mech suits that these soldiers wear to fight them. Mm -hmm. I think it's just absolute home run. Loved it. Um, I don't know that I see a ton of Lovecraft. Like there, there's some touches of Lovecraft. There's I some guess. tentacle beasties in there. Yeah, that yeah, kind they're, of roll they're tentacly, around. and there's kind of the the idea floated that they're floating around the cosmos like some sort of virus, just waiting to hit a planet that has the right conditions so they can take it over. And that, you know, that's kind of Lovecraftian in a way. Um, but I think that uh, it doesn't have if 
there were a perfect version of this film in my head, it would be one that just really leans hard into the existentialism, not only of an alien foe that seems to be incomprehensible to humanity, very Lovecraftian, mm-hmm. but also one that leans into the existentialism of crews dying how who knows how many times in order to find a way to stop them, kind of the toll that takes on him, not necessarily physically, but mentally and spiritually even. Mm-hmm. There's some of that. Um, I would have liked to see, see more of it. Um, but again, you know, like it's an action movie and I think that what we get is is pretty good. It's pretty pragmatic about that level of looping and time looping and, and how he gets back to the beginning of that loop. Because in order to be able to loop back to his starting point, he has to die. Feels very kind of video game-like in a way. It, it's almost as though he has to sort of level grind in order to be able to get to the next step That's and to the to next phase. Yeah, it's it's almost as though he's just, he's got to brute force his way out of whatever situation he's in. And in order to be able to do that, he has to die very many times. And you get that level of pragmatism from Emily Blunt's character, Rita, as well, who's kind of been in this situation before. So she gets it. She understands that. And every single time she realizes that this version of Cruz isn't going to make it out of this day, she just pulls out a gun and shoots him in the head. And that's very dark. And the movie treats it as though it's dark. And then the moment that it becomes a fact of Cruz's character's reality, it's just something that gets repeated over and over again for emphasis in order to prove the point that he needs to keep repeating this loop over and over again in order to achieve his goals. And I kind of like that the movie doesn't really lean into it because I would worry about that kind of introspection turning a little bit maudlin or a little bit too dark or maybe even not taking the number of loops seriously. I know that in Groundhog Day, it's almost treated for comedic effect. Um, And here it isn't really treated for comedic effect at all. It's just a form of punctuation at the end of a long day or at the end of, you know, a training montage in which Cruz has to die after he does every single like piece of training that he possibly can do for that specific day. I mean, I don't know. I, I felt like it did play it a little bit for comedy. Hmm. The the training montage, I'm thinking specifically where, you know, he gets, we get to treated to the site of Tom Cruise getting knocked hither and yon by these, uh, these training drones that kind of swing around and, you know, break his back just because he doesn't duck in time. And, the I feel like it does kind of play it for laughs where, you know, he's kind of like, oh, gosh, I got to get shot in the head again and go through the whole process of sneaking away from the drill sergeant and, you know, fight, tracking her down and convincing her. Um, and, and I it it seems at least spiritually akin to the montage in Groundhog Day where Bill Murray just decides, like, you know what, I'm just going to kind of go crazy and just see what happens, and, <laughs> yeah. you know drive a car off a cliff with a groundhog and explode in giant fireball. And it's like, I enjoy that as well. I think it's, it's a fun sequence in both films. I, I don't know. It, it, it might just be me kind of, you know, sighing for the, the, the perfect thoughtful sci-fi of, of my fantasies. But I, I think that the, what we get is pretty good and it's hard to feel too picky about something that's, as enjoyable as this and that moves i guess like the editing in this film helps it keep moving along at a good clip so that 
you don't have to think too hard, at least until the end, mm -hmm. where, where things start to, the contrivances start to pile up. But until we get to that point, it's move, moving so briskly that you're just along for the ride. And that's kind of maybe the ideal mode for a Tom Cruise action flick. Yeah, I I think the moment that I start thinking about this movie, it starts to fall apart in my head a little bit. It, it is the kind of sci-fi movie that is perfectly happy to just sweep you up and carry you along and explain just enough of how the world works that you don't really need to actively think about it. And I do appreciate that there isn't really any like diagram drawing or like trying to demonstrate the actual like practicalities of creating this kind of time loop. We just accept that it's something that happens and something that's happening to this character and this character only. And he's got to figure out a way to both get out of it and in the process somehow also save humanity from being overrun by aliens. And that's kind of a tricky balancing act to pull off. And then the third complicating factor here is that Tom Cruise is playing against type which I find really interesting because I feel like he doesn't really do that all that often. I know like the big cited like movie that everybody talks about when he's really playing against type is Magnolia. I, I suppose he also does it in Michael Mann's Collateral as well, but it isn't often, maybe ever, that Tom Cruise plays cowardly. And that's what he's doing here that's different from all of those other performances, even the other ones that are, you know, quote unquote, against type, because he's still very macho and masculine and all of those other examples. And here, not only is he cowardly, but he's upfront about his cowardice. And he explicitly says, I don't want to be on the front lines. This is not something that I ever had planned for myself. And in fact, I'm going to try to blackmail my way out of getting sent to the front lines in order to help out the war effort, because I believe that I'm frankly just better than all of those grunts out there who are going to go out and die. And I find the contrast of Tom Cruise's outward persona and like who we know him as, at least as a movie star versus this character, I think is just jarring enough that I think it also makes that character work better than it would if he were played by just about anybody else. I do really like him playing playing cowardly. I think he's he's so great at he he's got that, you know, that Tom Cruise grin. He's got kind of that that schmoozy charisma and the fact that he's he's able to employ it not in service of being like this is a guy who, you know, you want to be who or, who you know, is, is really cool or interesting, but he's, he's a guy who's just used to being able to use that charisma to weasel out of stuff he doesn't want to do. I, I think that's really interesting to watch. I liked it a lot. I also really like how this is, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a counterexample and I can't, this might be the only Tom Cruise action movie where he looks like a doofus at mm. the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like he, when, when he first puts on that mech suit and he's trying to figure out like how to turn the safety off and how to like even walk in it he looks dumb mm -hmm. and that's a lot of fun tom cruise doesn't look dumb in movies very often and i i think that gives it kind of this frisson that that makes the movie feel like something special in in that in that first act and then when the the whole time loop gimmick gets introduced you're you're enjoying yourself so much and you're interested to see what's going to happen next that you don't stop to think about the mechanics of any of it. And that's just, that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that 
willingness to make Tom Cruise look like a fool in the beginning as well kind of lends itself to the hyper-competence that his character displays near the very end of the movie too, because I think it makes me believe the number of repetitions a little bit more as well. Like, towards the end of this movie, he's definitely in Tom Cruise as we know him mode. And... I think I buy that almost more than just Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, who has always been hyper-competent, at least Hmm. according to each of the missions impossible. (laughs) Um, And I know that that character has evolved pretty significantly over the last 30 years that he's been around, but that evolution has happened over a very long period of time and has shifted with the tone of every single Mission Impossible movie. And here, to watch that kind of be collapsed into a two-hour action flick and to have that character arc be more or less believable, I think, is is pretty impressive, too, because it's not just Tom Cruise playing cowardly. It's Tom Cruise playing cowardly and then becoming a better person through the course of starting out fairly selfishly and just trying to get himself out of his plight and then slowly coming to care for another person and hope that they would be able to make it out of this same situation as well. I don't know, like it it makes me believe his arc a little bit more in that we know that he's had to really work to get to that point. And that kind of self-improvement is something that you can probably wave away or explain away with sort of a training montage, but there's also the weight of the amount of time that's going along with that training montage that makes it feel more believable than just one that would have happened where, you know, the character trains for a couple of days or a week, and then all of a sudden they're incredibly good at fighting. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that... I think that a lot of the film kind of really relies on the audience kind of assuming that, okay, he's he's obviously been through this loop hundreds of times by this point in order to have come so far. I, I wonder if a different actor would have been able to for, – for me, watching, you know, leveled up Tom Cruise at the end of this film versus – you know, original flavor Tom Cruise, you know, level one Tom Cruise at the beginning <laughs> of the film. He he feels almost like di- two different people to me. Hmm. And I, I, I can connect the dots enough. Like, okay, he's been through this loop enough that he's had the chance to grow a ton. But that's kind of just, that. that's me filling in the the blanks for the, the film. Hmm. I think about uh, like an actor like Harrison Ford, who is so good at combining a a character who's kind of flying by the seat of his pants and is also supremely confident, kind of like managing that tightrope well enough where it feels like plausibly the same person. And it's just, he either grows into one or he just kind of, you know, different facets of his character come out at various different times, depending on the situation. Hmm. I feel like Ford is so good at kind of managing that, that, uh, I, I don't know that Cruz is quite his equal in that area. So d- does he do good enough? Yeah. Could he have been better? Probably also, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting possibility. I do think that the editing for the movie does allow us the breathing space in order to be able to catch up to the development of Tom Cruise's version of the character. There are sections where, you know, we do get the training montage and then we get a chance to take a break and breathe and catch up to where he's gotten in his respective time loops. 
And I think the movie does a really good job of kind of turning the time loop on the audience in a couple of interesting ways. And I won't fully get into the details because I think it's good to experience the scene as fresh as you can if you haven't seen it before. But there is a moment where there is a pause in a time loop and we assume that this is about as far as the characters have managed to get. And then all of a sudden we realize that we're seeing this scene not from the perspective of Cruz's character, but from the perspective of somebody else. And as soon as we realize that, we kind of realize that there has been a little bit of a flip in the perspective of the movie. And he as a character has grown much further than we would have expected him to. And it makes perfect sense both for the plot, for the mechanics of the time loop that he's been going through. Like he's going to be fundamentally a slightly different person every time he comes back. And there's no way for us to know how many times that that's happened. So it kind of feels akin to that conversation at the end of Groundhog Day where Bill Murray just has like that quiet introspective conversation and he talks about like, I'm not God, but I might be one, I think. And and it, it kind of feels like that same level of gravitas where we get a chance to take stock of how far he's come. And I think that that's a helpful stepping stone towards getting to the very hyper-competent version of him at the very end. So I buy it. Yeah. I, I What interests me more about this film is is the relationship between him and Emily Blunt, the way you know a, a romance does develop as you would expect it to in, in a film like this. But the the specific character of it where bef- before they're kind of just working as a team and then later on um the the very the, the perspective that Cruz's character has uh developed over the course of however many loops he's been through causes him to uh grow in his estimation of her and also to do value her not just as a partner but also as somebody that he really wants to see live it's mm. almost as if he his eyes are open to the value of not just life in general but of one specific life mm. um and i i really liked that um i again i would have liked to have seen the movie really lean into that uh a little bit more but i liked that there's a scene where he he reveals just how uh, deep his knowledge goes of what's going to happen to her and his goal isn't uh, saving the world anymore it's saving the world with her in it mm. and I really like that kind of it, it's a way to raise the stakes without making the scale bigger it actually makes the scale smaller maybe that's something that quantum mania <laughs> could take take notes on is that it becomes more interesting not because like a larger thing is at stake, but because Cruz's character has developed a perspective on one person uh, and sees her rightly. And that's wonderful. It's it's nice to see that in a sci-fi action movie that did not need to, uh, you know, to dig that deep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I love that idea of kind of finding the universal in the specific. And you're right. I think that that is something that is, a strength of Edge of Tomorrow, at the very least, with regards to their relationship. So I'm glad yeah. you enjoyed it. I'm glad I'm glad I finally caught up with it. Thanks for uh, giving me a reason to do that. Uh, that'll do it for this watch list segment. 
I'm really looking forward to next week's watchlist segment. I, I feel I'm always looking forward to the watchlist segments where I get to do the picks <laughs> because that means I get to share something that I really love with you. And I'm sharing one of my very favorite films with you next week. We're going to be watching Martin Scorsese's great, great Raging Bull from 1980. It's my personal pick for the best Scorsese movie. So Ooh. you've got a good one in store for you. We're going to be pairing that with uh, Creed Three. So lots of boxing uh, lots of good cinema. It's going to be a good one. And additional Jonathan Majors because he's playing the antagonist of Creed Three, which I can't argue with that. That sounds great to me. Inject it straight into my veins. More Jonathan Majors for everyone, I think. Yes, please. That'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week, as always, helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.